0: Our sermon text this morning comes from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away.
1: Let's pray together. Lord, we know that you mean for us to
0: uh,
1: to respond with reverence and awe to this vision of your son and his power. And we confess that we need the help of your spirit in every way to give us that reverence and that awe. And for us to have our minds and hearts uh, drawn to be riveted by and concentrate on the glory of your son this morning. We know that whatever we know of Christ or receive of Christ is there not by the exertions of our mind or heart, but because you in your sovereign grace shine light where there is only darkness. And so we ask you to command now that there would be light in our hearts. We want the glory of your Son to shine. We want the morning star to rise in our hearts. We want to love this appearing of your Son as heaven is open to show him to us. And Lord, we pray, especially for those who do not yet know you and have not been united to Christ. We pray that you would work this morning to save them that they would see the glory of your Son as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that in the power of your Spirit you would grant that they would yield their lives to him on this very day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is such a a mighty portrait of Christ this morning and uh, such a gift to us to show show our Savior uh, to us in this way. Our text is about the second coming. But one of the things I'm going to be, uh, one of the points I'm going to be making over and over again, and that needs to be made over and over again, is that when Revelation shows the second coming to us, and shows who Christ will be at the second coming, it is showing us who he already is. Did you get that? The second coming does not confer upon Jesus Christ new identity that he does not already possess. He doesn't suddenly become, at the end of history, the King of Kings. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords this morning. He is that. And so when Revelation is taking us as it is in chapter 19, we're being fast forwarded all the way to the end of history. We are being shown who Jesus will be on that day because that's who he already is. And if you think about what the Holy Spirit's purpose here was in structuring the book this way, I mean the original audience for this book were our first century brothers and sisters who were living in the midst of the Roman Empire, and they were persecuted. It didn't look to them to their naked eyes when they looked around the world like Jesus Christ was king of kings and Lord of Lords, it looked like Caesar was. And so this vision of our Lord's power and his authority that he and not Caesar is going to be the judge over the living and the dead, that is meant from the future to pour strength back into the people of Christ in the present. And that is no less true for you and I today. Now, when we think about the second coming and we think about this text, there's some amazing, uh, really shocking truths about reality that the Bible teaches and that this passage specifically teaches that it's just I don't want to take them for granted. I was going to blast by these uh, as I worked through them in my preparation. I thought, you know, you can never take it for granted because we don't share in uh, our upbringing or our cultural uh, training, if you will, the the assumptions of this text. And so there are four shocking propositions about the nature of reality that The second coming generally and this text specifically lay before us. And I want to make sure those are on the table. And the first is this. History is not endless. History will not go on indefinitely. It is moving toward a conclusion. It is purposeful. It is not simply or it is not at all uh, like uh, Macbeth says, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ reminds us that all of history is moving toward a conclusion, is purposeful, and there is going to be a reckoning by God and a reckoning with God. Now, that's true at the macro level. It's also true for every individual life. Every one of us, everyone who has ever lived, will appear before the judgment seat of God. Proposition number two. And these are things, by the way, the world is not going to lift a finger to help you learn. These are things that only God will tell you. So, proposition one is history's is not going to go on indefinitely, history's moving toward a conclusion. It's purposeful, it has meaning, it's coherent. Proposition two is the universe is a monarchy. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The universe is a monarchy. And if you picture the universe like this big oval that I just drew with my hands, your life, guess what, is in that universe. Right? Your life is a subset of that universe. And if the universe is a monarchy if the true nature of the universe is a monarchy, which we'll see when Jesus returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. If that's true of the big picture, then that's also true about your life and my life. That means the essential nature of your life, whether you acknowledge it or not, is that it is a monarchy. And from cover to cover, the Bible celebrates that the nature, the center, the basis of all reality is that there's a throne. And God is on that throne, and He is not elected by anyone. He does not need our votes. There are no term limits. He doesn't campaign. He is. He has been. He will always be. The universe is a monarchy. Proposition three is that every single problem on the earth, whether inside of us with our own struggles and our own corruption or outside of us in the world around us, take your pick, every single one of those problems flows directly from mankind's universal rejection and rebellion against the rule of God. Period. Whatever the problem is, it all flows directly from mankind's rebellion against number two. The universe is a monarchy with God on the throne. So that leads to proposition four, that the Bible teaches that the second coming, that Revelation 19, 11 through 21 make clear. The only thus, in light of those first three propositions, the only solution to those problems, to all of our problems on the earth, will come when the rebellion of man has been fully quelled and when the rule of God has filled the earth. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness and God's will is done on earth in perfect conformity to how it is in heaven. And Revelation teaches us that the authority and power to bring earth into alignment with heaven, to bring about that healing, rests in Jesus Christ, has been entrusted by the Father to Jesus Christ by virtue of his death and his resurrection. Those are the four shocking uh, implications of the second coming in our text this morning. That's the nature of reality in the Bible. That's the worldview the Bible assumes. Now, if you grant that, and if you think about that, then I want you to consider what follows from that account of reality. And specifically, I want you to realize how, um, how much, if the universe is a monarchy, how disadvantaged we are as Americans. If the universe is a monarchy, then there is a sense in which we as Americans are at a severe disadvantage. And the reason for that is this. Our cultural training The air we breathe, the things we learn, the vocabulary and concepts we regard as sacred. They do not prepare us to embrace the universe as a monarchy, at least not one in which we individually are not the sovereigns. Correct? I mean, think about it. How was our country formed? This hit me with such force when we were in Washington, D.C. I thought, you know, we're all walking around these temples, to our founding fathers. And I wonder what the British people who walk through here think. What they see is a bunch of people who took what didn't belong to them from the king. The DNA of our culture is the rejection of a king. Now, I'm not saying it was bad. George Third was a tyrant. God is not a tyrant. But I just want you to see that from the very beginning, there is a a cultural ethos that operates upon us in which in which we we are the heirs of a culture in which we said we don't want a king. We want it for ourselves. And think about the nature of our culture. In our culture, authority is delegated upward. We call that elections. Elections. We delegate authority up, which is exactly the reverse of the universe in which God is the authority and he delegates it down. Now, I'm not saying it was wrong. I know I could potentially get a lot of emails over this. I just want you to see and be aware of the DNA that operates, that flows in your blood that makes it hard to hear that there's a king who rightfully demands and commands your immediate, unquestioning submission of every single area of your life. No one in our culture will say yay to you doing that apart from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We relish and cherish in our culture words, a sacred vocabulary of freedom, liberty, and independence. And those are lovely words. The problem is we have come to define them and equate them with autonomy, being our own rulers. We're like the book of Judges. There's no king in Israel, and every man does what is right in his own eyes. That's how we interpret freedom and liberty. But that's, of course, not what they mean. And so as we come this morning to look at a text and reflect, uh, we complete our study, God willing, of this text this morning. We look at this third role that we see our Lord Jesus will have at his return. And and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we come, I just want us to be aware of how many obstacles there are in our hearts to to the joyful reception of that concept and all of its implications and to acknowledge up front that unless the Holy Spirit does a work, In each of us, we will remain hard and resistant to that truth. And I believe that the way the Holy Spirit will break down those walls is he will use the portrait of Christ as king that is given to us in this passage. So I really just have two headings this morning. I know you didn't get an insert this morning, so let me give you my heads this morning. The first is we're going to look at the portrait of Christ as king in this passage. And there are four features of that portrait that show Him to be our king. And each one of them is significant. And then the second heading is we're going to look at two responses that this vision of Christ as our king calls forth from us this morning. So let's let's look at the portrait now. Admire the portrait of our king that is being given to us. And remember, this picture is being given of the future is being given to people who live in the present so that we will live in light today of who Christ already is. So when we look at this portrait, we're not just seeing a portrait of Christ's future glory. We're seeing a revelation of who Christ is right now. And the first thing I want to begin with is his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the name written upon his thigh and on his robe. It's the only one that is written twice. King of Kings and Lord of Lords in verse 16. Now, think about what that means. That means that Jesus isn't only merely a king or a Lord, but the king and the Lord. It means he has no peers. He has no rivals. His greatness has no limits. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. There is no one whose majesty Matches or approaches his. His authority knows no limits. Every other realm that is controlled or ruled by every other authority or king is subordinate to his and therefore must serve his purposes. Now that's an amazing vision of Jesus for people who are living in the midst of a hostile empire. That's just, if you just think about how radical that would have sounded. When they saw going down the streets in front of their houses every day, Roman legions, the reach of an empire that swallowed up all these cultures that was full of paganism, and here we have this great statement that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is unsurpassed every dignity, every honor, every glory in the world is beneath His. They are His servants. Oh, He is enormous. And this is already who He is, right? We know from Ephesians 1 and Philippians 2 that, that God the Father has already bestowed on Christ the name that is above every other name. He's already done that. He's already highly exalted Him. He's already put all things. Those, those are both parts. Those passages, both Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 22, and Philippians 2, verses 5 through 9, it's all about the past. It's already true of Christ that the Father has put everything in subjection under His feet. He has been given already to us as the church, as head over all things. Friends, that's who our Lord is. I don't know what image of Christ you have in your mind. Is he a gentle teacher, an itinerant preacher uh, with calloused hands and blistered feet as he's walking through Galilee? If that's the vision of Jesus you have, you need to fast forward into Revelation, right? Because Jesus is not on earth anymore. He is exalted at the Father's right hand and the only two people in the New Testament who saw Our Lord Jesus, after he was exalted to the Father's right hand, our number one, Saul, on the road to Tarsus. And you remember what that was like. It was noontime, and the brightness of his appearing blinded Saul. And then the Apostle John in Revelation 1, and when he saw Jesus in his present exalted glory, he fell at his feet as a man who was dead. There needs to be power in our understanding of who our Lord is. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And on his head, number two, he has many crowns. So many that they cannot be numbered. Many diadems. This is a great vocabulary lesson. A diadem is a crown. So when you take the SAT, teenagers, you'll know. Right? A diadem is a crown. And on our Lord's head, you'll notice on verse in verse 12, he has many diadems They're too many to number. We've seen that both the dragon, who is a symbol of Satan, and the beast, who is the symbol of the Antichrist, they both have crowns. We've seen that they wear crowns in chapters 12 and 13. But their crowns are limited. They have seven and ten crowns respectively. When, when our Lord is shown in his glory, his, his crowns are too many to number, which means his glory and his power are limitless. This is a picture of the honor that the father has conferred on him. He has many crowns. He has a name above every name. And then he has his royal robe, which in many ways I think is the most significant. Look at verse 13. He has a robe. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. Now, the robe, I, I think, is, a, is another symbol of royal glory. And there's, I have to be honest with you. There's, there's, commentators don't agree about this. Some Commentators uh, think the robe is a, is part of his conqueror's uh, uniform, as it were, and they think that the blood that the robe is dipped in is the blood of his enemies. I don't buy that reading. I'll just be honest with you, and I'm in the minority on this. I think that this is a kingly robe, and the reason I do is because I think there's a very explicit parallel here between this passage and the passage that's in your reflection quote from Matthew 27, 27 through 31, which is is Matthew's account of Jesus' being mocked by the soldiers. And you'll notice that in that portrait, and you can read it, before his crucifixion, Jesus is given a crown of thorns, he's given a reed, and he is given a scarlet robe. That they, They strip him of his clothes and they put a scarlet robe on him. And you'll notice in this portrait, he has many crowns, he has a rod of iron which is a scepter, and he has a robe dipped in blood. I think there's an explicit parallel here to the mockery in Matthew twenty seven, and I think it shows that Jesus Jesus has triumphed as king. So I see the robe as part of his part of his kingly uniform, and I think that the blood is not not his enemy's blood, I think it's his. And the reason I think that is because that's the whole point of Revelation. If the robe is is a symbol of kingly glory, then let's just think about the big picture of what we've seen in the book of Revelation. What is it that makes the Lamb of God worthy? What is it that is highlighted again and again and again as the basis for His being worthy? What is the center, the catalyst, the thing that sets the worship of heaven off? It is that the Lamb was slain. What gives him the authority to take the book from the Father's hand? The book of history. It is that he was slain. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then when the angels erupt in worship... In verse 12 in chapter 5, they say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive, and then there's a list of seven things, and what's first? To receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. It is Christ's blood, it is his willingness to die. And his triumph in rising again from the dead. That is the center of our Lord's glory in the book of Revelation. And so when he wears this robe, it seems only appropriate to me that as he leads out his armies for that final battle in this place of great honor, and we see the vision of his triumph, it only makes sense to me that this symbol of his glory would be marked by traces of His own blood so that all those who follow Him would always remember that His victory is accomplished and secured through His death. I, I just don't buy the other reading. Christ's death is the center of His glory. And non-Christian friends... That is really important for you to know. It's very, you know, the world does some strange things with Jesus. And I did this as well as a non-Christian. When I stopped hating him, I started to respect him. And the respect of the world is just deadly for Jesus Christ. because, And, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and the, you can respect Jesus Christ and be lost eternally. Respecting Christ is not safe. You can respect Christ as a great moral teacher or as a compassionate individual. You can, you can, you can feign giving him honor for the wisdom of his moral teachings, for his, his compassion, for his gentleness. But you know the Bible won't let you do that. The only Jesus there is that we know is the one in the Bible And what the Bible says about Jesus, the only basis for his honor, the one that is the center of his glory is the fact that he died as a sin-bearing substitute in the place of his people and rose again from the dead, the cross in all of its fullness. That is the center of Jesus' glory. And if you want to honor Christ, if you want to know him, then there is only one way to know him. It is as this triumphant Sin-bearing substitute who conquered sin and death. You don't get to approach Jesus Christ like he's a buffet, where you'll take his moral teachings, but you'll avoid the critique of the cross. No, it's a full package. And then, my, my believing friends, as you think about this, as you see this image of our Lord's robe dipped in blood, and if you buy my reading that this is his blood... That this is the symbol of His honor. And does that not call your heart out in love to Him? To see again the victory and the triumph that He has won for us. To think, You see, behind Him is the armies which are in heaven, verse 14, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, how did that linen get clean? That's the the saints. That's, That's those who die in the Lord before His return. How did their linen get clean? How did it get white? Because we, as the saints, have dipped our robes, chapter 7 says, in the blood of the Lamb. We've been cleansed not by cleaning ourselves, but by the death of the Son. And we've been purified in His sight. And that ought to call our hearts forth in love to our King. Do you know what today is? Today is, yes, it's Landon's and Luke's birthday, but beyond that, uh, and that's a great, that's a great day. Um, but today is also. Uh, the anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki. And I've been to Nagasaki, and I've been to Hiroshima. And the bombing of Nagasaki is very interesting because it wasn't necessary, right? I mean, the, the whole plan was that the bomb would be dropped on Hiroshima, and then the Japanese imperial government would sue for peace which is why the second bomb was not dropped until August 9th. The first bomb was dropped on August 6th, and then the seventh goes by, and the eighth goes by, and there's still no surrender, and so the bomb is dropped on Nagasaki. The bomb, the first bomb, ultimately did not achieve its intended purpose in that sense. Now, I think there's an analogy From that two-bomb sequence to what God is doing in history between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When Christ came, the judgment of God came upon the earth. But it was born by Christ. In other words, God sent His own Son to endure the reality publicly, to endure the reality of his wrath against sin. The first bomb, if you will, dropped on the sun and the sun caught it from love for his people. And that was a public event that now has been proclaimed for 2,000 years so that people would know two things, so that all the nations would know Two things, that God is serious and He is not walking away from the world or any individual and that the sin of man must be reckoned with and will be reckoned with. But that second message, the fact that it was the Son of God Himself who took that wrath publicly, is an awesome picture of the love and mercy of God that God has provided a way before the final and last bomb of judgment drops, has provided a way for, for those who are lost to be saved, is providing on the basis of His Son's own suffering and triumph through it, a basis for amnesty. A basis for you to find in Christ a shelter as someone who has taken the wrath of God away from you before final judgment comes, which will happen at the second coming. And so, my non-Christian friends, this is why, ultimately, you must, I plead with you, take the cross of Christ seriously. It is God's mercy to you today. It is a preview of the judgment to come. And then finally, the fourth uh, facet of this portrait is just and I've already mentioned it is the iron scepter that Christ will have the iron rod that he will rule the nations with and this shows that Christ is the fulfillment of uh, the Jewish Messiah he is the Messiah who's prophesied in Psalm 2 who receives the nations for his inheritance now this is a big vision of our Lord Jesus powerful king who's honored and glorified who's 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 Dignity and glory are a function of his death and his rising again. Now, what does that have to do with us? I mean, Okay, if you buy what I said, that this is a vision of the future that is being given to us so that the present is changed, then, then in what ways is this supposed to change us? How is it supposed to affect us? I mean, is this just informing us about what's going to happen in the future? Or is it meant, as we look upon this and see Christ here, to change how we live in the present? And it is the latter. It is meant to change your life. It's meant to change the way you spend this afternoon. And I have two responses I'm going to highlight. And the first is, this is meant this greatness of Christ as our king is meant first to call forth our submission, and secondly, it is meant to call uh, forth uh, our hope in Christ. Let's talk about submission. And this is kind of uh, King 101. A king is a figure of authority. A king rules. A king has subjects, and he is someone who has the entitlement to command the obedience of his subjects. If that's true of a king, then the king of kings is the highest of authorities, and he is entitled to your full submission and obedience right now, no questions asked, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, period. The first lesson of Christ's power and glory is that we are being called by God to submit to it. Jesus Christ doesn't negotiate with anyone. He doesn't bargain. He doesn't barter as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He commands. Jesus is not inviting your obedience. He's not requesting your obedience or your submission. He's commanding it through His Word. Abraham Kuyper, who uh, was a a very uh, fascinating 19th century Dutch theologian, professor, and also politician, Uh, perhaps his most famous quote is this, In the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. In the total expanse of human life, there is not a square inch of which over which Christ is sovereign does not declare that is mine. Now, when you think about Kenya or Mexico or IPJ or even Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, you can say, amen, preach that. That is mine. But when you start thinking about what you do with your computer, how you spend your money, whether you pray, how you use your abilities or don't use them, how you steward the gifts that God has given to you, your thought life, your work, your relationships. See, I can't even talk about them without using the second person singular possessive pronoun. You are. But if Kuiper's right, it's his time, his relationships, his money, his sex life, his marriage, his kids. And he wants all those. Because the Father's already given them to him. They're already his. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And I said earlier that we as Americans, we're at a distinct disadvantage when it, when it comes to this because we're not used to having kings. We're used to interpreting freedom and liberty as I get to decide what I want. And that means that there's this huge force field around here and you don't have any right to tell me what to do. And my fundamental assumption when I wake up in the morning is I get to do what I want today. I am my own person. We wake up breathing the atmosphere of this day belongs to me. And I belong to me. And so what that determines what we get angry about and frustrated by and discouraged by. is when things don't line up with my sovereign plan that I, tend to, that I intend to execute for the, ex, the expansion of my own sovereignty in the world. But there's an advantage that we have as Americans. And it's this, that we know that the main competitor to Jesus' kingship is not George III, is Mike Francis. It's you in your life. We are such a self obsessed culture, we can't escape the fact. We can't blame it on some guy in Washington or some sovereign in a palace. We know that we're the main competitor. And so if you're uh if you're non Christian, what the call of submission means to you, friend, today is that you would yield your life to Christ. That you would realize under the work of God's spirit that you have been handling another's property every day of your life. And that this one who, whose property you've been handling and using for your own glory, he is offering peace to you on the basis of his work and amnesty. And has set his love upon you and draws you this morning and invites you to yield your life. And ironically, in the mystery of the gospel, as you yield your life to this king, you actually will find freedom. You'll actually find true joy. You'll actually know what it means. When the one who's supposed to rule actually does. And if you're a Christian... What this calls you to is obedience and faithfulness to God's commands. The gospel does not mean we get to take a hike from the law. And so I ask you, where are the growing edges of your obedience to Christ? What what is coming into your mind right now as I'm saying this? What are you trying to push back out of your mind right now as I'm talking to you about submission? What is it that you don't want to think about right now? That God has been nudging you over that God has been laying on your heart, that comes up when you boot up in the morning? Where is that growing edge of obedience that that you don't even want to pray about, either because you're ashamed of it or because you are afraid of where it might lead if you actually begin to lay it before God and say, "What, what do you want me to do with what belongs to you? And whatever that is that keeps coming up for you right now, that I believe the Spirit is bringing before you, I urge you to follow out of obedience to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And remember, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So the first response is submission. The second is hope. Hope. We honor a Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords by abounding in hope and having the right kind of hope. Uh, The fact that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords means that he first is to be the center and ground for all our hope for the future and also that we as Christians, because he is King of kings and Lord of lords, we are not to walk around as discouraged people. We are not to live as gloomy people. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, and whatever it is in your life that is weighing your heart down, whatever it is, know this this morning as you see this name written on Christ's robe and thigh. He is above it. He is King of it. And God is calling for repentance where you and I have permitted discouragement and gloom to settle in, where we have not laid hold of the triumph of Christ to provide strength for us, to realize that He powerfully orders all things in our lives for His glory. Powerfully, the catechism says. There is no trial that you are enduring right now. No affliction. No adversity which is not subordinate and subservient to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. And that means, friends, that there is a warrant in the power of Christ for you and I to weep over the lack of rejoicing in our lives. Did that sound crazy? We should weep over the lack of rejoicing of rejoicing in our lives. If He is King of kings and Lord of lords, if every realm and every power and every influence and every molecule is subordinate to His rule, as if it wouldn't be enough for Him to say that He's King of kings, that He has to say it twice, He's King of kings, and if you didn't think that was strong enough, He's Lord of lords. Friends, We are being called to lift our eyes up. He is the builder of this church. He is the shepherd and guardian of your soul. There is nothing that happens that does not uh, happen at His command. There is nothing that happens that is not powerfully ordered by His omnipotent might. And what that means is Is that when we look at the world, there's something we can agree on with non-Christians. I mean, I've never met anyone, even when I was a non-Christian, I've never met anyone since I became a Christian back in college. I've never met anyone who's looked me in the eye and said, there's nothing wrong with the world. I mean, nobody ever says that. We we agree. If you're a non-Christian here, you're probably here because you want to see if these Christians actually think that anything is wrong outside their little holy bubble. Boy, I wish you knew what was actually in the bubble. We are just sinners. And in a lot of ways, it's more obvious in here, right? But even non-Christians agree with Christians that things are wrong with the world. They're wrong with people. They're wrong with the world itself. What distinguishes people is not that we agree something's wrong in the world. What distinguishes us is where we look for, for a hope for change. How we address it. It's the prescriptions, not the diagnosis so much. And so what is the world, what is is man's typical range of solutions to the problems with man in the world? Well, it's things like this. It's education. We look to technology. We look to information. We look to psychology and medicine and government and the political reform and economic opportunity and advances in evolution, excuse me, advances in science, regulation. Some people just assume evolution. Now, I have a very interesting conversation with Gary Fairman at lunch this week. I didn't tell him I was going to do this. But Gary had a trip to Pompeii and a bunch of other places this summer. And he said he was standing in the middle of this intersection in Pompeii. You can stand up and correct me if I get any of this wrong. Standing up in this intersection in the middle of Pompeii, and he was overcome by how advanced Pompeii was. And what's very interesting about that story that Gary uh, elaborated on with me is, you know, civilization was at a very high level in the first century, and yet by the time you get to five hundred. A.D., we go into this period called the Dark Ages for centuries, and civilization does this retreat, and learning is lost, and technology is lost. Now, when something like that happens, that ought to make you question the basic assumption of American life that things are always going to get better, that man is always going to make progress, because you have about 800 years where that's a pretty big blip on the screen in the last thousand. I find that very interesting. Yet we assume this tacitly. We assume that mankind is going to be able to bring to bear solutions that are going to be able to solve ultimately what's wrong with man. And I would say that ultimately uh, what the Bible teaches is that mm-hmm. the diagnosis of what's wrong with the world that man gives and the solution that man gives are both too shallow. At best, those things, and each one of those things is good, right? Each one of those things is good. I am not, uh, here I go, I'm going to get emails not only not liking our republic, but also, you know, not liking education and science and technology. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And what the second coming ultimately shows is that the answer, the ultimate and final answer for what is wrong with us in the world is not going to come from within. God is going to have to break in with omnipotent power and assert the reign of His Son. And He is doing that already through the Gospel. We are the people in whom, as the people of Christ, the new creation, the age and power of the future is breaking into the present. And as Christ saves us one by one and redeems us, we are lights in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our networks of relationships. We are light of this new way of, of thinking and about the world and about God's hope, the, the hope that God gives and the basis for that change. And it all flows from the work of Christ. It does not honor Jesus Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords if we have a naked confidence in things like progress and technology, and advances in medicine, and advances in learning as the ultimate answer to cure what's wrong with man. Because the fundamental problem with the world is that the world is alienated from God. And so it's only insofar as the rule of God and the, glo- the rule of God is reestablished and the glory of God is loved and rejoiced in, that is, that is when healing will happen. And that is already happening through you. Because Christ has broken into the present in your life by redeeming you if you're a Christian. And if you're a non-Christian, you know as well as I do that the parade of solutions the world offers for the problems of the world, they never solve the problems of the world, do they? Just be honest. So, our hope for our world rests in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the hope for ourselves. And let me complete the thoughts that I began this section with. When we face difficult providences, when we and that's Presbyterian for hard times, but with an emphasis on the, the fact that all events are ordered by our God. There's nothing that is beyond the power or not under the control of Christ. I just want to make that point again for you as you survey your own life, as you think about what it is that is making your heart heavy, if it's heavy this morning or what might make it heavy uh, a year from now. What what seeing Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords means for you is that He is worthy of, of your most vigorous and energetic hope in the midst of that situation. Because it is not beyond His control. It is on His leash. It is serving His purposes of love and kindness in your life. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Friend, we read as a family last night, Psalm 136, which is a 26-verse psalm. And the second half of every one of the verses is the same. So you're really you're learning thirteen verses. My kids didn't buy that either. And it goes it walks through the history of Israel up to the settlement of the land of the land. And the the second half of every verse is. In the ESV, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Then this happened. And this for why did this happen? For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. This happened. Why? For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And that is such a picture of what is true for the people of God. That is Romans eight twenty-eight worked out. Expanded into a psalm, working through the history of Israel, because everything that happens in the life of a saint happens according to and under the power of the risen, reigning Christ. And it all happens as the expression of his steadfast love for you. And that is the metronome of the life of a of the saints. That is the downbeat. That is the foundation. Everything. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, endures forever. And what the psalmist only knew in shadow, we know in full because Christ is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. Friend, what need is it that you have this morning? Do you have... A health need? Do you have a perplexity that needs to be answered? Do you need a job? Do you need reconciliation? Do you need freedom from a sin? I'm not saying that there are going to be easy solutions to those things. What I'm trying to do is to for you to identify where are those soft places in your heart, those places where you are tempted to question the goodness and the power of God, where when you're honest... And you ought to be honest here. When you're honest, where are those places where you are just at your wit's end and where you are tempted to doubt? And it is exactly in those places that I want to urge you this morning. I want you to bring to bear by faith this power of Christ that He wields even now as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I call you in the name of Christ to realize that He is not under those things. He is over them. Yes, God will speedily bring about justice for his elect. He will speedily hear the cries of his children. But as Jesus says in Luke 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see, you must lay hold of that truth. You must be active in seizing it and asking God to show you the power of Christ. And that is not going to happen apart from your Bible. So I invite you to study this portrait of Christ and to bring your hearts to Him this afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, we're weak, and the storm winds blow, and our faith is small, and we spend too much time looking inside at ourselves and not enough time looking up and out at You in Your glory. And what I ask you to do this morning, Lord, in me and in everyone here is that you would ignite hope. That you would give us the ability to weep over our lack of rejoicing because you have the last word and final say, because you are omnipotent. You are powerfully ordering everything in our lives. Would you give us that, that hope in you? And would you also grant that we would have hearts that are soft and teachable and that yield under your kingly authority. I pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Will you please stand and sing, Fairest Lord Jesus.